You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. The Curse of Peripheral CSR The first of these curses is the curse of peripheral CSR. Returning to our BP example, here is a company with a long and mostly proud history, contributing highly useful products to society and practicing extensive CSR management. Leaving the safety and environmental disasters aside for a moment, BP has made serious commitments to sustainability and responsibility and achieved a great deal in terms of measurable improvements in its safety, health, environment, labor and human rights performance. And yet for all their flagship leadership in the age of management, we see that CSR has remained on the periphery. BP has not gone beyond petroleum, quite the opposite in fact. It is the same for many companies practicing CSR. At worst, and I see this especially in developing countries that are stuck in the philanthropic or promotional mode, CSR sits in a public relations, marketing, corporate affairs or human resources department. It is an add-on, used explicitly to promote brand equity or the company's reputation. At best, and more common in developed countries and among subsidiaries of multinationals, we see companies practicing strategic CSR by trying to align their CSR activities with their industry impacts or embedding CSR through management systems. Even so, they completely fail to change the strategic direction or core business of the company, or the harmful effects of its processes, products and services. What BP and Enron and virtually every other leader in the age of marketing and management have in common is not the deliberate intention to mislead, although there are clear examples of this too, but rather a corporate culture supported by a system of narrow institutional performance incentives, short-term market pressures and perverse economic measures of progress that remains essentially in conflict with the objectives of sustainability and responsibility. When a trade-off has to be made between financial profitability and ethical standards, the choice is clear, irrespective of carefully crafted codes of practice on the boardroom wall. If there is a tug-of-war between economic growth and environmental impacts, the winner is clear despite any number of ISO 14001 certificates. If customer demand for cheap products is at odds with fair labour conditions, consumerism triumphs over the needs of the powerless workers in the supply chain from some far-flung land. Once again, examples are not hard to find. As I am writing this in July 2010, the headlines make the point. Marlborough cigarette manufacturer Philip Morris International has acknowledged serious concerns after Human Rights Watch found 72 cases of child labour in a remote region of Kazakhstan, with children as young as 10 in dismal conditions picking tobacco destined for the global company. The UK retailer Poundland has just been exposed for sweatshop activities. A boy of seven was found to be working 100 hours a week in an Indian factory, earning just 7p an hour to make napkin rings for the cut price chain. CSR has remained peripheral in another way. It hardly ever extends beyond the large, high-visibility branded companies in any country. 
All the CSR indexes and rankings, the CSR codes and standards, the CSR reports and audits are focused on a few thousand companies. The Global Reporting Initiative celebrated a thousand reports in 2008 that are using their guidelines. SA8000 certification still only covers 2,000 facilities. The UN Global Compact has 5,300 business participants. These numbers are peripheral by any measure you care to choose. Even ISO 14001, with almost 190,000 certifications worldwide, pales into insignificance when you consider that the US Chamber of Commerce alone has more than 3 million members. If we are honest, CSR is the preserve of a tiny corporate elite, a minuscule business minority. The Curse of Incremental CSR Closely linked with the peripheral curse, and driven especially by the age of management, is the curse of incremental CSR. To fully appreciate this issue, we have to go back to business guru Peter Drucker's 1954 book, The Practice of Management, in which he introduced the concept of management by objectives, or MBOs. The concept is now so endemic as to seem like common sense, but it was quite a revolutionary concept at the time. The basic idea is to translate corporate strategy into a series of measurable objectives, which can be cascaded down through the organization. This allows managers to track and incentivize performance, while employees know what is expected of them and can reap the rewards if they meet their targets. Furthermore, if they participate in setting those objectives, they are likely to feel more motivated and empowered. The MBO approach, together with subsequent tools like the balanced scorecard, unwittingly aids and abets the age of marketing and management, in the sense that it draws attention to voluntary incremental improvements, which distracts attention from the larger problems and deeper impacts of the business. In one of those bizarre ironies of history, the system that would do more to embed the MBO approach than anything else was conceived by one of MBO's great detractors. I'm referring to W. Edwards Deming and his total quality management approach. Deming credits the inspiration for his theory of management to a 1927 meeting with Walter Schuwart of the Bell Telephone Laboratories, the originator of the concepts of statistical control of processes. Years later, during Allied occupation of Japan, Deming was asked by the U.S. military to assist with the 1951 Japanese census. This led to an invitation by the Japanese Union of Scientists and Engineers for Deming to teach statistical control and quality management to its members. Japan's CEOs were impressed with Deming's idea that improving quality would reduce expenses while increasing productivity and market share, and began to test and implement TQM in their factories, notably in their nascent motor industry. Not only did this assist Japan's economic rise in the second half of the 20th century, but it also spawned the international quality movement. The TQM approach was later standardized through ISO 9001, first launched in 1987. By the end of 2008, nearly a million certifications had been issued. The key to total quality management, according to ISO 9001, is continuous improvement, which is predicated on setting objectives and reviewing performance against them. 
the designers of the standard seem to have overlooked, or perhaps ignored, Deming's objection to MBOs. Deming argued that a lack of understanding of systems commonly results in the misapplication of objectives. By contrast, a leader with an understanding of systems was more likely than a set of objectives to guide the workers to an appropriate solution. This point is important for the responsibility debate because the most widely practiced CSR standard, namely ISO 14001, is designed explicitly to apply the ISO 9001 approach to management systems, including MBOs, and apply this to environmental management. This is not a bad thing in and of itself, and it has resulted in many welcome incremental improvements in the environmental performance of companies' processes. But the Achilles heel of ISO 14001 and all other voluntary CSR standards that use MBOs is this. Companies set their own objectives and make progress at their own pace and discretion. Furthermore, as with the peripheral curse, the MBO's approach has failed to challenge or significantly change companies' largest negative impacts, which are associated with either the nature of their business, the consumption-driven lifestyle they promote, or the impacts of their resource and energy-intensive processes, products and services. The net effect is that, despite more CSR than ever before, and despite laudable incremental improvements in CSR performance at the micro-level, Virtually every macro-level indicator we have of social, environmental or ethical quality, be it the gap between rich and poor, deforestation, biodiversity loss, carbon emissions or corruption, all of these show that things are still getting worse, not better. The incremental approach to CSR simply does not produce the scale and urgency of response that is required nor does it get to the root of businesses' systemic unsustainability or irresponsibility in the shareholder-driven, growth-obsessed, capitalist global economy. The Curse of Uneconomic CSR The third and final curse of CSR 1.0 is the much-touted business case for CSR and the fact that it is not nearly as obvious, certain or practiced as many assume. Let's start with the rhetoric. The World Business Council for Sustainable Development, which is the strongest proponent of the business case, suggests that it is predicated on five returns. Operational efficiency, risk reduction, recruitment and retention of talent, protecting the resource base of raw materials, and the creation of new markets, products and services. And it is certainly not hard to find ad hoc examples of each of these win-wins. But is there always a business case? To answer this, we must look beyond the rhetoric and turn to academic research. The findings vary. For example, Griffin and Mahone reviewed 25 years of studies and found that a majority showed a positive link between CSR and financial performance, while Margolis and Welsh reviewed 80 studies, of which just 42 showed a positive relationship while 19 demonstrated no relationship and 4 found a negative one. Orlitsky, Schmidt and Rines reviewed 52 studies and in most cases the studies suggest a positive association between CSR and profitability. Two reports by sustainability, called Buried Treasure and Developing Value, 
also suggest mixed results. Some relationships between sustainability factors and business success factors are stronger than others, and in many cases, no relationship exists. Laffer, on the other hand, in a review of Business Ethics magazine's 100 Best Corporate Citizens, found no significant positive correlation between CSR and business profitability as determined by standard measures. Academic and author of The Market for Virtue, David Vogel, similarly concludes that there is no definitive answer to the question of a financial link. It depends on an individual company's circumstances. Academics searching for a definitive corporate responsibility financial performance link, he says, are barking up the wrong tree, and I tend to agree. There are far too many variables to isolate the impact of CSR on financial performance, except through very specific examples like eco-efficiency. What's more, are typical measures of CSR a reliable proxy for sustainability and responsibility? After all, if we had correlated Enron's CSR and financial performance prior to its demise, it would have pointed to a strong positive relationship, which makes a nonsense of the whole business case argument. I have a more fundamental problem with the misdirection of CSR business case rhetoric, however. The real question we should be asking is, does the market consistently reward sustainable and responsible performance by companies? Even without checking the data, we know intuitively from what we see going on in the world that the answer is unequivocally no. With very few exceptions, the global markets today reward the externalization of social, environmental and ethical costs over the short term. New York Times journalist and author Thomas Friedman calls this the privatization of benefits and the socialization of costs, while activist writers like Naomi Klein call it the race to the bottom, referring to the tendency for companies to locate their production in places with the lowest labor or environmental standards, and hence the lowest costs. To underscore the point, the Vice Fund in the US, which only invests in the so-called sin industries like tobacco, alcohol, gambling and armaments, consistently outperforms the market over the long term, including socially responsible investment funds like the Domini Social Equity Mutual Fund. However, we don't need to go to extremes to prove the uneconomic nature of responsibility. Why are fair trade and organic products or renewable energy more expensive than more generic products? Why does Exxon remain one of the largest and most profitable companies in the world? The fact of the matter is that beyond basic legal compliance, the markets are designed to serve the financial and economic interests of the powerful, not the idealistic dreams of CSR advocates or the angry demands of civil society activists. What's more, business leaders tend to agree. The 2010 survey of 766 CEOs by the UN Global Compact and Accenture found that 34% cited lack of recognition from the financial markets as a barrier to achieving their sustainability goals. Nestle's Jose Lopez is candid. At the same time that we are coming out with a lot of discussions regarding the importance of sustainability, he says, the market continues. I had hoped that after the world lost $5 trillion in market capitalization out of this nonsense financial crisis, that companies would start to be measured by something else 
other than market capitalization. But the world doesn't seem to be going anywhere other than to measure companies by their market capitalization. So where does this leave us? I've argued that the ages of greed, philanthropy, marketing and management have brought us to a point of crisis in CSR. Specifically, CSR is failing to turn around our most serious global problems, the very issues it purports to be concerned with, and may even be distracting us from the real issue, which is business's causal role in the social and environmental crises we face. The way I see it, that leaves us with three options for taking CSR forward, which I like to think of as the parrot, ostrich and phoenix scenarios. The way of the parrot is to tell it like it is, recognize the limitations of CSR and admit to its primary role as a business tactic for reputation management. The way of the ostrich is the status quo, pretend that CSR is working and that more of the same will be enough. The way of the phoenix is the transformative agenda. Reconceptualize CSR as a radical or revolutionary concept that challenges the intransigent business and economic model and offers genuine solutions to our global challenges. The way of the phoenix is what I call systemic CSR or CSR 2.0 and is what we are just starting to see rising from the ashes of the previous ages as we enter a new age of responsibility. The rest of the book starts to sketch what this alternative future may look like.